When I was in boarding school and again in college, back in the Stone Age, the 90s, the dorms were separated by two genders, male and female. The guys' dorms, like men's restrooms everywhere, were atrocious. <laughs> they stank. There were bits of paper towels and like toilet paper scattered everywhere. Hairs, candy wrappers, the microwaves in the common spaces smelled like ramen, always. Back then in uh, my high school dorm, we had this little thing called a phone booth, which is where you could get calls occasionally, once a semester back then. And all, everybody had shared this one phone and we'd all go into this little booth and it smelled like moldy feet. <laughs> The rooms were perhaps even worse. There were dirty clothes and bed sheets all over. And the bed sheets were like a lesson in either neglect or just utter minimalism, or maybe like both. <laughs> Often there was just a sheet that was never washed and rarely on the bed. But when I visited the girls' dorms, it was an incredible change. <laughs> They smelled like Care Bears and Keebler Elves lived there. <laughs> Everything was clean. They had like bulletin boards with photos of everybody looking chipper and nice and accomplished. Uh, and all those bulletin boards had like construction paper and seasonal things like, you know, heart shapes or, um, you know, uh, four-leaf clovers or whatever. And, uh, and on the doors, every dorm room had like a personalized bulletin, a personalized like, like placard that showed their name and it was written in like bubble letters and it was beautiful. But the most amazing feature of the girls' dorm rooms were the beds. The beds had huge fluffy pillows. Whole sets of sheets that not only matched but made you feel like you wanted to put them on and wear them around campus. And the piece de resistance was always the comforter. Somehow, my friends that were girls all had amazing comforters. They were clean, soft, huge, and fluffy, unlike anything I'd ever seen before. My good friend Megan, who was from Visalia in the Central Valley, um, she had she had one of these incredible comforters. And her her parents had grown up. Uh, her parents grew grandparents grew cotton. And when Megan was a kid, the whole family used to help with the harvest. They'd go out there and help out. And next to her bed, she had a photo of her at about four years old, falling backward into a truck bed full of cotton with his shining four-year-old face looking up in the, at the sky. It was, I love that picture. It looked like absolute bliss. And that's how I felt when I lay down on her dorm room bed and wrapped that comforter around me. Absolute bliss. Like I was falling into a truck full of cotton. Such is the bliss of the comforter. Today, 
the day of Pentecost, we celebrate the presence of the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. In Jesus, uh, in John, Jesus refers to the coming of the Paraclete, the Advocate, the Helper, the Comforter, which is, comes from the passive in Greek, which signified called to one side. That was the notion of what the Paraclete meant, the etymology, called to one side. It was a loose translation of a Hebrew term, term Manachem. And I mention the Hebrew because it is important to note that the Holy Spirit was at work throughout history. And today we celebrate the Spirit revealed. Just as Jesus reveals God with us, so the Spirit broadens and deepens that sense of God being with us. And I love how the Spirit reveals the divine presence in this pivotal moment in the reading we get from today from Acts. Through language. I love that the Comforter is revealed through language. There's very little that comforts like language. It takes a few forms, that comfort. There's the comfort of a shared language or idiom, like when you're traveling, say in places like China, where you don't see letters that we understand very often, and then you see some written language, some written English. There's that bit, hearing the comfort of our own language. But there's also the figurative notion of, of understanding of comfort. When someone is speaking your language, right? Someone who gets it. They deeply understand the subtleties of what you are saying, how you said it, why you said it. They get it. When I do premarital counseling sessions with two people who are hoping to get married, I often direct them to the work of Gary Chapman. Is anybody familiar with this? Particularly his work, The Five Love Languages. Now, if you ever see this book, you will think it is either a romance novel or an advertisement for a cheap beachside destination. It is arguably the worst cover of all time. Uh, <laughs> it, it usually has a couple like walking on the beach. It's funny because they change the cover. More, most people must be telling them this because they change the cover every couple of years. But it's almost always a couple on the beach walking along happily or or a heart carved out in sand on the beach with like some horrible pastel colors around it. <laughs> it's the worst cover I've ever seen. But you can't judge a book by its cover. And this one is important. Chapman's notion is that there are five principal ways in which human beings express and receive love. Five love languages. They are words of affirmation, physical touch, quality time, gifts, and acts of service. Words of affirmation, we get this, right? We get spoken language. It feels good. It's nice when somebody says something nice to us. But it also works in the form of notes, when people express their, their sentiments in notes, their praise in notes. Physical touch, we probably get that one too. Hugs, kisses, pats, sexual interaction. Body love, bodily love, physical touch. Quality time, this is 
time spent together with intention. With intention. Gifts, these are symbols of our love, and it doesn't usually matter if they are expensive. The gifts love language is one that is a, it's a symbolic uh, embodiment of your sentiment. Acts of service, doing chores, washing dishes. They're not here, but I'm thinking about Bill and washing those windows. <laughs> this notion of love languages is not exclusive to romantic relationships. It is insightful for all those we care about. Everyone with whom we come into contact. As the Spirit shows in this passage, love enables understanding. It facilitates compassion. That friend of mine I mentioned from Visalia the, with a cotton comforter and all that, she now lives in Little Rock, Arkansas. And I talked to her the other day because I have a mentee from the Episcopal uh, Service Corps um, who is moving out there. And in the past 14 years, she has developed a thick Arkansas accent. <laughs> her husband is from Arkansas, but still, she has, she has a good one. Yeah. Um, in part, she developed that because she's around her family members, but also because she is a compassionate person, someone who wants to speak the language and the intonations, the subtleties of the people around her. Most of you likely saw the news from Palestine this past Monday. As the U.S. prepared for the opening ceremony of its new embassy in Jerusalem, the Israeli army killed at least 60 Palestinians and wounded 2,700 others. When those protesters approached the border fence in Gaza, Hours later, Israelis and Americans, including Trump's daughter Ivanka, celebrated with pomp and circumstance in Jerusalem. Oh, as I was watching that, I imagine Leonard Cohen rolling around in his grave as they sang hallelujah. Did you guys see that? They, at the end of the ceremony, they all sang hallelujah which is a sexual romantic song. It has nothing to do with Israel, for, the, for one. But for number two, it's, it's just it's a horrible treatment of that song. These two completely different scenes, people being shot down by snipers, unarmed people being shot down by snipers, and this utter privilege took place only 40 miles apart, an hour's drive between these snipers and the prideful display of power and political insensitivity. For years, there has been discussion, a dialogue about a two-state solution. At times, we have people getting together and actually talking to one another from very different sides of this. Along with that two-state solution, the common understanding was that Jerusalem would be a neutral zone. 
And this moving of the embassy is what has shifted that for those who are not aware. But all of that speaking has come to an end. I love how the New York Times, I think they put it appropriately, they said, now with militant Hamas movement hanging on to control in Gaza and Mr. Netanyahu backed by President Trump, neither side is even listening to the other. And the Palestinians have lumped the United States together with Israel as an overt adversary. Actions speak louder than words. We all know that. What our country said to Palestine and the world was, we don't care. You don't matter. Watching and listening to these things, it feels like some sort of fiction. Many people have said it feels like end times. It recalls this passage from Joel that is inserted in Acts. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Before we dismiss this language as apocalyptic nonsense, consider the gist of what Joel is saying. Things are going to change. Joel is saying the old ways will end. A change is going to come. As theologian and biblical scholar Ched Myers writes, apocalyptic vision looks for the end, not the mere recycling of the politics of violence and injustice. This passage is ripe with what Ched labels as the apocalyptic conviction that a truly just social order cannot be established by the sword. Ched goes on to say, Christian communities should not be sucked into the fevered vortex of wars and rumors of wars and the promises that this armed struggle will put an end to the old order. As Joel says, in order for change to come, we must have vision. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. People empowered to dream, to envision a new way of being, to put an end to the old ways of hatred and oppression, to live deeply into the reality of our interconnectedness. If we are going to seek out a new vision, we must learn the languages of love. We must learn to tell people that they are loved in a language that they can understand. We cannot simply continue to speak hatred, anger, and violence. To change the story, we must learn the languages of love, a language that is grounded in listening, in knowing someone, in knowing their needs, knowing what matters to them, knowing what comforts them. Wrapping the beloved in the comforter, the infinite, boundless edges of eternal love. 
until that love fills the space between us and expands us all like balloons beneath that holy fabric so that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen.